नमस्ते श्री गुरुभ्यो नम आई वेलकम यू ऑल टू द सेकेंड पूज्य स्वामी दयानंद सरस्वती मेमोरियल लेक्चर वी हैव इंस्टीट्यूटेड दिस लेक्चर इन मेमोरी ऑफ श्री पूज्य स्वामी जी लास्ट ईयर एंड वी हैड अवर फर्स्ट लेक्चर डिलीवर्ड बाय श्री रामाधव जी जनरल सेक्रेटरी भारतीय जनता पार्टी एंड फाउंडर ऑफ इंडिया फाउंडेशन दिस ईयर वी हैव श्री गुरुमूर्ति जी हु विल डिलीवर द मेमोरियल लेक्चर the program will be i will speak about indic academy and my association with pujya swami ji for a few few minutes then i'll request sri gurumurthy ji to deliver his lecture and then we will have a 10 minute q and a indic academy is a non traditional university for traditional knowledge we have established ourselves in 2015 we seek to bring about a global renaissance of indic civilizational thought we seek to preserve protect and promote indic civilizational thought we do this across the intellectual cultural and spiritual spectrum and we have what we call as a three horizon framework we look at things from a near term medium term and long term we have a multidimensional strategy and we seek to build centers of excellence we seek to transform intellectuals and we build an ecosystem our centers of excellence currently are intergurukula university center what we are trying to do here is to bridge the gap between the gurukula system and the contemporary education we are seeking shastras indic knowledge systems and indology over the last 2 years we have done several initiatives under this center and we have now examining the establishment of a mahagurukulam in hyderabad along with the liberal arts university we have another center center for soft power and this center seeks to preserve and promote indian culture to the global audiences we have established this 2 years ago and this is headed by sri vijayalakshmi vijay kumar in this center we have we run a digital platform called software mac and we also conduct uh, uh, events seminars recently we have conducted a festival for a month long celebrating our festival uh, our soft power and we had more than 112 speakers from various uh, countries we now recently established a center for indigenous sustainability and indigenous environmentalism this center is headed by viva kermani and rahul goswami here we trying to focus on crafts ayurveda and regenerative agriculture apart from these three centers we seek to transform intellectuals by conducting courses we are offering research fellowships we conduct events we also publish and we have also incubated seven platforms we are also building an active ecosystem we are building the infrastructure of the ecosystem by providing grants to various 
uh, organizations. We also have specialist networks, and we also have actively uh, promoting collaborations with multiple universities. This is the broad uh, strategy that we are following. Over the last five years, we have established ourselves as a very unique organization doing all these activities. We have emerged as the largest grant-giving organization. We have emerged as the largest, as an organization which is conducting unique uh, events. We have conducted events which have not been thought of before, which are very, uh, very unique in their, in their construct. We are publishing several books, uh, which are, again uh, have, uh, have made a, a mark. And the, uh, our entire start focus is to be unconventional uh, because we are focused on uh, the traditional knowledge. We want to approach it in a non-traditional way. Specifically, my association, my personal association with Pooja Swami Dhananda Saraswati started in 2010 when I set up Advaita Academy to promote Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, and I approached him. Advaita Academy in the last 10 years has more than uh, 45 gurus, teachers, academics, and we have more than 9,000 videos. Our aim in Advaita Academy is to establish the traditional teaching which Swamiji has started way back uh, in, in Rishikesh uh, uh, several decades ago. And um, we want to continue that tradition by establishing four more, uh, four more traditional forms of uh, uh, traditional unfolding of uh, Advaita Vedanta uh, across the world. What Swamiji has done in Salisburg, uh, in Nagpur, in Anekati and Rishikesh, we want to do the same thing in other parts of the world. This is the, uh, uh, we have the blessings from uh, Pooja Swamiji for this. For a long time, uh, I requested him to uh, bless me, saying that the world needs more teachers, more authentic teachers. Because what has happened is that we have a several, several uh, 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 spiritual gurus uh, who don't link the, their teachings with the traditional knowledge who do, and, and, and who sort of promote it independently without, link, without linkage. The consequences of that is that over a period of time, these spiritual teachings uh, uh, lose their uh, meaning and it becomes very uh, frivolous. So it is very important, we believe it's very important that we need to, uh, uh, we need to produce more uh, Swamiji's and Sw Swaminis who are trained in the traditional uh, Advaita Vedanta and unfolding of traditional Advaita Vedanta. So this is our belief. We have the blessings for Swamiji and we have last year announced uh, that we will be establishing the first one with Swami Atma Prakashananda in London. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we could not do it, but we hope to start this in, 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 in the post-COVID uh, scenario. We are also looking at establishing a Yogacharya program, which is again focused on trying, trying to produce, we have number of uh, 500 of our teachers, we have 200 of our teachers, we have uh, uh, asana practices that are happening, asana teachers are being produced. Uh, but what we believe is that it, the time has come for us to produce yoga charyas. The focus would be on not just asana, but you take it to the next level. And that is what we are trying to do in terms of uh, uh, another program that we want to launch. The third thing, is executive coaching. 
world over executive coaching is very big and uh, unfortunately they again the same thing uh, the the all the coaching is uh, all the coaches would take wisdom from our scriptures but uh, they don't acknowledge uh, and and uh, and it, there is a need for us to produce a course of for executive coaching which is authentic and which is which which does not shy away from uh, quoting the scriptures so these are the three activities that we are proposing to do apart from that we have also taken up uh, a sankalpam to establish 108 adi shankaracharya vigrahas around uh, the world we have already uh, uh, initiated this we have installed six vigrahas uh, so far and we are also trying to follow the route that adi shankaracharya has taken across the country and see where all they they there are there are no vigrahas and we would like to uh, uh, institute uh, so that there is a uh, there is a mark of uh, 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 trail there so these are the activities that uh, indic academy and uh, advaita academy are, are undertaking and um, our, our we are guided by the spirit of uh, uh, pooja swami ji is there with us uh, I, i i met him on the 19th of september when he flew down from uh, from america I, i met him in rishikesh and uh, he has blessed uh, and and his last words to me personally were work hard bharat ke liye so his uh, these were the words these were the blessings and these are the blessings that guide us at uh, uh, in all that we do i i now uh, uh, welcome sri uh, gurumurthi ji gurumurthi ji i had the opportunity and pleasure to work with uh, for almost uh, 25 years now one of the uh, finest uh, legal and corporate and strategic thinkers of our times uh, i just read out most of you already know about him i'll just read out a few uh, lines about him swaminathan gurumurthy popularly known as writer and journalist in india and a chartered accountant by profession is a corporate advisor of high standing highly rated for his investigative writings he has ceaselessly campaigned against corruption at high places exposing the bribery in the bofors arm deal and the nexus between corporates and the government a beleaguered government arrested gurumurthy and persecuted gurumurthy but faced humiliation with the entire media standing by him the issues raised by gurumurthy became election issues which led to the defeat of the most powerful government since independent hamish mcdonald a well known australian journalist wrote in his book polyester baron that gurumurthy's investigative work must rank among the most powerful examples of investigative journalism anywhere in the world he was rated among the 50 most powerful persons in india in 1990 eighth most powerful and 70th most powerful today as if uh, he has on the advice of the great sages of shankaracharya chandrashekar saraswati of kanchi kamakodi peetam he has kept away from all positions of power offered to him by different governments corporates and other institutions ladies and gentlemen i have extreme pleasure honor uh, inviting uh, sri gurumurthy ji uh i really uh, i'm thankful to him for uh, accepting this he has been a long term associate of uh, pooja swami ji and he has worked very closely with pooja swami ji and uh, he will share with us uh, his experiences and uh, his learnings and the impact pooja swami ji has had on our society please welcome namaskar kiran i am delighted to uh, speak today not only on swami dayanand saraswati from whom my learning started on various subjects which i wouldn't have touched in my life 
but for my association with him. Uh, it's uh, destiny that brings you in touch with uh, certain people. And that's how I would regard my association with uh, Swami Dayan Saraswati. You know, I have been in a different field, though my intense liking for Indian spiritualism, nationalism, culture, nation had always kept me in the realm of uh, the ancient Indian continuity into contemporary India. So it is in this context that uh, we organized one Dharma Rakshana Samiti conference in Chennai in the context of huge efforts for conversion, which was taking place in Tamil Nadu for a long time and it has been a feature of all India also. And uh, till then, we had always thought that Swami Dayanand Saraswati were more concerned about Vedanta and strict and pure spiritualism. But thanks to the efforts of Dr. Padma Subramanian, who had very close association with Swamiji, we could invite Swamiji to participate in the conference which was held in 1999. It was a very unique conference. We had some 45 days preparations. And uh, each one of them who participated in the conference was chosen to participate with an entry fee. And nearly 1,000 people participated for a whole day. In which Choramaswami, Arunshuri, all participated and a galaxy of spiritual leaders also participated in which Swamiji in one sentence captured what is the problem? He said conversion is violence. I mean in these three words he encapsulated what we have been struggling to say in volumes of books. Conversion itself is violence because you cause such huge mental trauma not only to the converted but also to the society from which the conversion takes place. And with those three words Swamiji exploded into the Vedanta of cultural nationalism of India. That was Swamiji's transformation from Vedanta to Vedantic cultural nationalism. And from then onwards, a different Swami, Dayananda Saraswati, emerged on the horizon in India and outside to his audience and other audiences. And it was a magnificent period afterwards as to how he expounded an ancient concept, concept in the modern context in a manner in which nobody would refuse to listen, refuse to accept, and no one would counter 
because of his extraordinary brilliance he was a master teacher and master of words and so the uh, blessings he had from goddess saraswati manifested in his manifold efforts activities formulations expositions in which i had the opportunity of participating in 1999 this darbarakshana samiti meet he transformed from dharma to hindu dharma is it the foundation of dharma is the hindu philosophy hindu people and it extended into the hindu nation and dharma rakshana samiti evolved into hindu dharma acharya samiti which was his greatest contribution to hindu dharma hindu dharma or hindu nation or hindu society or hindu philosophy can never be vaticanized you can never have one leader you can never have one approach because it is many in the form of one and one representing many so it's something unbelievably diverse if you put india and hinduism on the one side and the rest of the world on the other you will see more diversity here than the rest of the world put together how to give a name form definition to it so he devised the hindu dharma acharya sabha where he kept all the acharyas on the pedestal and he himself sat in a well to tell them you are the master i am the exponent of this under your blessings and this became the only representative uh, forum for the hindu society which never had a representation at the global level this is today recognized as the representative at the united nations and other multi national forum on spiritualism and religion this is his single greatest contribution the way he did it was marvelous he went and met every acharya sometimes waited to see them and his humility manifested in the way he worked to bring about this conference and this extended into two or three initiatives even earlier in the year 2000 he had organized the world conference for preservation of religious diversity which was the immediate manifestation of his formulation conversion is violence because the ancient societies were the ones which were devastated and destroyed by conversion religious diversity was emaciated by conversion so he brought together all the ancient societies to say that the world had this kind of religious diversity as many diverse groups constituted that many religions that many ways of worship that many approaches that many course of spiritual development and he continued this effort and brought hindu philosophy 
on a geopolitical platform, a geo-religious and geo-cultural and geopolitical platform by first organizing the Hindu-Jewish conference. You know, in fact, Jewish religion has a very specific mandate not to deal with idolaters, not to do business with them. And Swami Dayananda Saraswati so beautifully expounded the concept of Hindu philosophy, saying that these outward manifestations were merely efforts to graduate a person to a level of one unmanifested, unseen God, and that is Brahma. So he made all the idols, which were the objects of objection to the Jewish religion, merely an appearance. And that resulted in an agreement being signed later as to how these two religions are aligned, how they can work not only philosophically, religiously, culturally, and even politically. <coughs> this had a, an extraordinary impact on even Indo-Israel relationships. And then in the year 2008, is one of the finest contributions which is not yet seen in the public domain except when the Prime Minister of India in the year 2016, if I remember right, spoke about it. When uh, certain Kerala nuns were uh, given sainthood, there he recalled Swami Dayananda Saraswati's contribution in the year 2008 on the occasion of the a declaration of human rights from a religious perspective. On the 60th anniversary, all the religious leaders met at the Hague with Swami Dayananda Saraswati participating. It was done through Global Foundation for Civilization Harmony, in the opening of which Swami Dayananda Saraswati participated with the galaxy of spiritual leaders participating from all religions, from Christianity, from Hinduism, from uh, Islam, from Sikhism, from Jainism, from Jewish religion, and it was declared open by uh, uh, Dalai Lama, and the chief guest was Abdul Kalam. It was a galaxy of uh, uh, such masters. In which one, Dayananda Saraswati took the lead role and formulated the GFCH, which supported Swami Dayananda Saraswati's efforts in the 2008 conference, in which he virtually incorporated his 1999 formulation that conversion is violence into an acceptable model for which all religions joined to sign where there were three propositions he, he, he made clear that everyone has a right to be in the religion of his birth and no one should be converted by force or by inducement and religion should live in harmony. This is essentially a Hindu philosophical viewpoint. All the religious leaders accepted it. Professor Vaidyanathan, who assisted in this, he went two days ahead and socialized with them. And he expounded what is inducement. When it was asked if distributing a Bible is inducement, Vaidyanathan said, Distributing a Bible is not inducement, 
But if you keep a hundred dollar note inside the Bible, it is inducement. So the whole thing became so clear, they all accepted that's wrong. And then Swami Dayananda Saraswati continued his geo uh, political, uh, geo cultural, geo religious, geo political efforts. Political in the sense of international understanding, not in the sense of sectional politics. And laid the foundation and construed, constructed the models for expounding the spiritual values underlying Hindu nationalism. Hindu nationalism is not a political idea. It is a spiritual idea. Swamiji expounded the spiritual values underlying and turned the spiritual discourse, pure spiritual discourse into Hindu nationalist spiritual discourse. We have to go back a little as to how this spiritual perspective of nationalism was lost in the Indian discourse, particularly in the post-Indian discourse. If you look back, all these great leaders, of course, Swami Vivekananda and Narabindo are a class apart. They belong to a different realm. But Mahatma Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, Rajini Palme, that a communist who formed, Indian communist who formed the communist party in England. Will you believe they all spoke of Hindu nationalism? That's what I'm going to tell now. Of course, Swami Vivekananda expounded the idea of Hindu nationalism, Hindu spiritual nationalism associated with the land of India, with its philosophy, with its culture, with its values, with its tradition, and brought out the geopolitical, geocultural, and geo-nationalistic character of India. And then Aravindo, in 1909, in his Uttarpara speech, equated Indian nationalism to Hindu nationalism and to Sanatana Dharma. He said, India will live only so long as Hindu nationalism and Sanatana Dharma lives. If they are capable of perishing, India will perish. That is how he equated the very purpose of India, the very life of India, the very sustaining force of India to Sanatana Dharma and Hindu nationalism. This is 1909. At the same time, Mahatma Gandhi writes his Hind Swaraj, the dialogue, the imaginary dialogue between the editor and the reader, where Mahatma Gandhi is the editor and he is the reader also. The reader keeps asking questions. One of the finest document, critique of Western civilization, each one of the points raised by Mahatma Gandhi is proving to be true in contemporary world. But because we are caught in the mesmeric influence of the materialist order, we are not able to see beyond this to understand, but it is all coming out explicitly. And a specific question, Mahatma Gandhi pushed himself through the reader, that what is it? It is only the Britisher who brought together the so-called Indian through post office and railways. How do you call yourself a nation or a country? It is the Britisher who made it. Gandhi replies, this is a complete misconstruction. You know, 
Our religion says that we can worship God at home. We can worship God within. But our forefathers established these char dams. The Rameshwaram in the south, the Puri in the east, and, uh, and centers in the north. And made millions of people from move from one end of the country to the other. And they felt one in a manner in which no two Englishmen can be. And gave a sense of unity. And he said everyone thought of having a part of Ganges in their home. And the reader asked another question. Mr. Gandhi, it will only mean Hindus. What about Muslims? He said the intervention of another religion does not change the character of a country. It must assimilate them. This was Gandhi's response. Today, if you say that it will be called communal, it will be called majoritarian. But this was the formula of Gandhi. And Gandhi said in 1940 that I have reread several times what I wrote in 1909 and I don't need to change a comma or full stop on this. And in 1935, Jawaharlal Nehru writes the glimpses of world history, in which he says, you cannot really draw a line between Hindu nationalism and Indian nationalism because India is the only land of Hindus. And he goes a step further and says, Swami Vivekananda expounded the concept of Hindu nationalism. And there is nothing anti-anybody in that. So he accepted the concept of Hindu nationalism in 1935 as opposing none. And in 1939, Rajini Palme Dutt wrote his India Today. At that time, the title of the book was India Today. At that time, the British had a huge campaign that you fellows did not know what is freedom. It is our English education which gave you a sense of freedom and sense of identity as a nation. And it is our education which has made you fight against us for freedom. Rajini Palmeda counters it in diverse ways. The most important thing is his formulation that even if we had not learnt English, we would have got the spirit of freedom from the philosophy and teachings in our isolated Veda Padashanas. This was the position of diverse streams of thoughts and leaders in India till 1939. In 1940, Jinnah passes the resolution for partition of Pakistan in Lahore. All drop the idea of Hindu. India becomes, Hindu becomes an orphan. Hindu philosophy becomes untouchable. And with this idea that we could avoid partition. We could not avoid partition and Hindu India became orphan in post-independent India. How, how much of an orphan, how much of a hated orphan it is. The first Prime Minister of India said, 
Hindu nationalism is worse than and more dangerous than Muslim nationalism, even though it is more aggressive. This was the formulation for independent India's approach to different religions. This defined the fundamentals of secularism in India. Hinduism was under stress. It is many people even, you know, as late as in 2009, when I met a Hindu spiritual leader, he said, you know, no, no, we have to drop the word Hindu, it is not going to help us. This was the extent of impact that the post-independent secular order created in the mind of the Hindu spiritual leaders, Hindu people, Hindu society. And this evolves into a huge response to Ramjan Bhumi movement, which acts as a corrective to this massive distortion and perversion of national mind. And it brings about a total change. And the Supreme Court delivers a judgment in the year 1996 that Hindutva or Hinduism or Hinduness is not narrow-minded. It represents the Indian culture, Indian civilization, and Indian ethos. Constitutionalization of Hindu spiritualism, Hindu cultural nationalism happened after massive protest against this extreme perversion of the Indian mind through this concept of perverted secularism, which was expounded immediately after partition. And this became the foundation on which the Indian mind began building up. The most critical part of it is what Karl Popper said as the paradox of tolerance. You know, we began equating a tolerant philosophy with an intolerant ideology. You know, in India, there is no ideology at all. Everything is philosophy. Philosophy means that you have a view and you conceive that the other person will have another view. This is philosophy, darshanas, shat darshanas, in which three of them even deny the existence of a defined God. That is called Nirishwar. So our darshanas themselves said self is God. There is no God independent of the self. So we had a dialogue and the dialogue avoided any kind of skirmishes, violence, fights on the street. So this spirit of tolerance was developed by dialogue for thousands of years. Adi Shankara Mandala Mishra dialogue is a very important exposition, example, illustration of this culture of dialogue. Where if you get angry, you are supposed to be defeated. That was the level to which we had taken dialogue to be. And against this, there are intolerant philosophies, intolerant ideologies. Ideology presumes what I say is right, what the other person says is wrong. There is no question of dialogue. There is no place for dialogue. This created a conflict between tolerant 
philosophies and intolerant ideologies. Karl Pepper summarized it beautifully that there is paradox of tolerance when the tolerant has to accept the intolerant and in the process the intolerant will destroy the tolerant. So we may have to contain the intolerant in the interest of the tolerant. This is formulated in 1945. But nobody took note of it, notice of it because the liberal world was obsessed with this liberalism so much. It never understood that there could be intolerant ideas, ideologies, thoughts, peoples, institutions, religions, politics, which tolerant philosophies, tolerant ideas, tolerant institutions cannot digest. They never understood it. Of course, it came in a big way in 2001 when it hit America. Then they understood that intolerance is something which cannot be tolerated. This is what Ramjan Bhumi movement brought about. So this idea, paradox of tolerance was a problem in India and this manifested, this was rooted in India's ambivalence to war and power. This is the 2000 year ambivalence. This ambivalence commenced with the confusion of Ashoka. You compare, you know, Ashoka became the embodiment of post-independent, not only post-independent India, post-Mauryan India also inherited the uh, model of Ashoka. But it was a perversion and lack of proper understanding of Ashoka himself. I will go into it later. So much so, when Chanakya said that, you know, you have to be prepared for war, you need a regular army and no state can be without an army to face a violent invader, Kadambari Bana condemned him as an adharmi and Chanakya's literature disappeared in the country. One book was saved in Mysore. That was the extent of objection to a person who said you may have to have violence to resist violence. That is the extent to which the Indian mind was ambivalent about war and power. Why this came? You look at Arjuna's state of mind before the Kurukshetra war. It is exactly the same Ashoka's state of mind after the Kalinga war. Whatever Ashoka said after the Kalinga war, Arjuna said before the Kurukshetra war. Ashoka said, I have killed so many people, I have killed, I have made so many orphans, I have made so many, I am a sinner. And he gave the war. Arjuna refused to wage the war because of these very reasons. But Krishna educated him through his long discourse and said, a rare war is inevitable, you please understand. He was not promoting war. And then finally tells Arjuna in the 63rd chapter after carrying him through so many perspectives of life, 
as a rotten country, as corrupt, see the traffic, see the dirt. Once the Pokhran atom bomb was exploded, everything changed. India, everything she compl they complained against India remained the same. But the pride of India was aroused with the result. When nobody would put one dollar on India, the non-resident Indians contributed six billion dollars for the India development bonds. This is the transformation of the Indian spirit. And India became a player at the global level. Nobody bothered about India. In fact, Clinton said when India exploded in the atom bomb, the land of Buddha and Gandhi has done this. We were always the land of Buddha and Gandhi. Did you ever look at us? Only the sound of the atom bomb made the world realize because it is world is ruled by powerful rogues. And the balance of power is the theory by which they were ruling the world. Those who do not have power have no role in the world. This was the post-Cold War formulation of the global order, which is now changing as they say. I will go to it a little later. But the fact remains that India did not count in the world of power because India did not choose to be a player. Okaran atom bomb made India a player. And we have come far away from that. We are a global power player. I will cite only two examples. That's India's position is now rising. Is clear from one, one change in the global discourse. You know, this Asia-Pacific concept has changed into Indo-Pacific concept in the global discourse. Because India is now a power to defend global interest in Indian and Pacific Ocean. We could never have achieved abrogation of Article 370 but for our global power. We could not have done many transformation, including the Ramjan movement, without national power echoing in global arena. So India is now an emerging global power. And the message is very clear that we will never be, we will never conquer and we will never allow anyone to conquer us. This is the concept of Ayodhya, which manifested in India emerging as a global player and as global power. Now, the world is changing. The post-COVID world order will change the existing world order forever. Everybody says this, even the very person who formulated the Cold War order said, world order will change forever, Henry Kissinger. And no one knows what the future order will be. The existing order, which replaced the ideological order till, nine, till the Cold War. The Cold War order was an ideological order of conflict between democratic and free economic societies versus the autocratic and communist economic societies. In this we did not figure, but China's defection from the socialist camp to America 
was necessitated by China's failing economy, in which they nearly lost about 40 million people in a space of three years in the Great China Famine. And that made China feel that we cannot live with communism, we have to transform. So they became a market economy with the Marxist state. But we continue to be a socialist economy in a democratic state. So there were a mismatch. The world preferred China because the world wanted to invest in a stable society in dictatorship because the post-Cold War order wanted China as the Western ally, ally. And also the West found it is good to invest in a uh, in an autocratic society because there will be no problem, there will be stability. No, this is the kind of thought which gave preference to China. And China has now emerged as the biggest threat to the free world. You know, this is not something which happened during COVID or it is going to happen after COVID. Even before COVID, this was manifest because in the year 2017, the US trade representative and EU trade representative both submitted reports to their respective government that we cannot work the WTO, which is the global free market, with a non-transparent China. You always knew China was non-transparent, but you brought China into it because it helped you. But 2008 financial crisis changed the whole thing. By making real economy stronger than the financial economy, when the rest thought it would control the real economy through the financial economy, its whole assumption failed in 2008 and the entire power of China was built between 2008 and 2019. So now, in this period, they filed an application in WTO saying China is not a market economy. Everyone knew it. China said the moment you admitted me in WTO, I have become a market economy. This distortion was brought about by the West, whose multinational companies thought that they can keep China as a dirty factory to make profit everywhere in the world. This landed the world in such difficulty. There is a huge problem for the democratic societies today. That's where I think the turn of India, the role of India, the power of India, and the future of India is going to be. That's what I'm going to explain to you. In the year, uh, in 2019, January, the Foreign Policy magazine brought out a very profound document, Democracy and Disorder, in which they said, liberal democracies are under stress and are failing. In Central and Eastern Europe, liberal democracy not only may fail, they may become autocratic societies. You know, the liberal democracy means only 14% of the world's population. India added, they will never accept India as a liberal democracy. India added, it becomes 31% of the world's population. If all kinds of democracies where elections are held, it becomes 46% of the world's population. 
54% of the world's population is under autocracy so foreign policy magazine say that india is the only silver lining or golden lining of democracy because without that the world of democracy will not survive and it did not go into specifics but i am going to specifics because the western liberal democracies are failing because of liberalism itself it has given so much role for individuals without ref without they can live without regard to family they can live without regard to society community even state with the result the average voting in liberal democracies has come down from 95% to almost 62 to 63% today the american democracy is struggling to cross 50% and youths are not voting only 40% of the youths are voting only educated people people with high income people with high education they are majority voters the minorities do not vote the poor people do not vote so it is an elite top down democracy which has no relevance to how ordinary people think in liberal democracy i am not talking about other democracy look at india 75% of the minorities vote 66 67% of the scheduled caste and obcs vote it is the forward caste it is the educated people it is the high income people who vote less so you can understand our democracy is bottom spread stable democracy that is how an illiterate india could outvote a dictatorship in 1977 the world did not properly take note of how strong the sense of democracy in india is because india had deliberative democracy for 5000 years we had even a representative democracy which the constitution recognized and brought in the panchayati raj in 1990s and we have the largest democratic representatives in the world almost 2.8 lakh representatives elected this something a huge difference it makes and now the entire world is seeing if not a cold war a division between the democratic societies democratic nations and autocratic nations in which india will emerge as the fulcrum that is the most important thing because we are the most stable democracy we may have an unstable government we had unstable governments between 1989 till 2014 we had stable to rickety coalitions but after 2014 things have changed india is no mature enough to understand the need for a stable government and so it is electing stable governments which no democracy in the even in, in germany they are not able to elect one party uh, majority everywhere this problem is there but india is able to solve the problem this has made foreign policy recognize 
that there is something in this civilization what is in this civilization i was asked a question in 2014 when i addressed a, a conference in, in japan about uh, democracy democratic values in asia you know it was a it was a seminar in which uh, the moderator puts the questions which he considers relevant and in the people in the audience is made about the country from whom he is asking the clarification so the question that was put to me was that how is it that india which is the most diverse country in the world is able to work a democracy i said this question itself is a very peculiar question because democracy and diversity go together if it is pakistan whether a rahman or ali should be the president or prime minister will be the test all religious people one religion one race one color one language democracy is not needed for them democracy is needed where you have such unbelievable diversity that is why we worked a democracy and we did not work a democracy merely by methods by votes we had such bandwidth of acceptability and tolerance i gave them three examples that rama obeyed his father because of that he was revered prahlada defied his father because of that he was revered sita obeyed her husband so she was revered meera defied her husband so she was revered lakshmana respected his brother so he was respected vibhishana disobeyed his brother because of that he was respected so you must understand the bandwidth of our understanding and tolerance this is what makes democracy workable in india it is not votes in fact after the answer was over the moderator told me this answer will be remembered for a very long time in tokyo it's not something which i expounded anything new it is something which is explicit on the face of the indian civilization so india is emerging as the fulcrum of the democratic world which is going to be the future world order according to many because the world cannot live with the dominant autocratic centers of power so now what is that india and india which was always thought to be nervous about china it has now delivered a message not only to china but to the entire world that it is unafraid of china not many countries today in 2017 if i remember right the date was 30th november or so when the hudson institute said that india indian prime minister has emerged as the only leader who could stand up to china it was on the diplomatic stage but it happened in doklam now it is happening in ladakh 
because we never resisted today they in fact the shock of the chinese is that why is india not afraid because their presumption is india will be afraid this is the sense of ayodhya which has come as a result of a huge process it has not developed in one day and world respects india and india will be supported by the world otherwise world is not going to fight india's war in fact jawarlal nehru wrote to america please fight china for me nobody is going to fight your war you have to fight your war so indian ambivalence to power which curtailed the indian nation emerging as a player a powerful player as waned in the last 25 30 years and india speak about speaks about atmanirbhar india why i am mentioning this is the foundation for all this is in the hindu cultural and spiritual nationalism without which this kind of evolution unfoldment would not have taken place it is not just political it has unified diverse castes of india there are caste based political parties which have become irrelevant there are religion based political parties which have become almost irrelevant there are political parties which thrived only by abusing hinduism they are on the defensive this is not because of any particular political party it is a political process which has made india stand on its own so the atmanirbhar idea is as come in the context of economy and trade but it is actually a cultural idea a spiritual idea a social idea a national idea that india cannot be like any other country it can share ideas but there cannot be one size fit all model for the world the world proclaimed in 1951 if any country has to develop they have to give up their philosophy they have to give up their way of life they have to give up their caste community everything and then only they are eligible for development this was the declaration by the united nations in 1951 an advisory for the development of underdeveloped nations in 1990 the west declared that liberal democracy and free market have emerged as the final victor and it is for the rest to follow the west as the best everything changed in 2001 and the crisis into which the global economy began getting into in the year 2005 the g20 nations declared that the one size fit all model won't work in 2008 the world bank declared it in 2010 to 2013 the united nations said that it is not possible to have one size fit all model it is nonsense this is what united nations said in 1951 each nation has to work out its own model based on its culture and value systems democracies function like that governments function like that laws function like that economics will also function like that to understand this even now our economists our political thinkers our intellectuals our civil servants they have not understood the cultural differences of india which makes it apart 
in all spheres, including economics. So this is the realization that is coming to India. And what is the way forward? This is where I think great men like Swami Dhyananda Saraswati have a big contribution to make. India was a thought given in the 17th and 18th centuries, particularly in the 18th century. All great men said India has only the thought, philosophy, working model for a conflict free world. It lasted even into the 19th century. But after the British established their dominion over India, this waned. And in the 20th century, India never figured. And now time has come. And in this period, India became an importer and consumer of ideas from outside. India felt that its ideas are of no relevance. In fact, Warren Hastings said, after we establish our rule, when we leave, the Indian thought system, which is so important and dominant, would have been consigned to archives. India will never go back to where it is. That's where he proved to be wrong. We have kept alive this flame. That's where great men like Swami Dhananda Saraswati, commencing from Ramakrishna Paramsa to Vekananda to Swami Dhananda Saraswati of uh, Arya Samaj to uh, Maharishi Aravindo to Mahatma Gandhi. They all kept this flame alive. We should have been devastated in the tornado of the 20th century. And India is re-manifesting. Undeniably. So, the great contribution of Swami Dayananda Saraswati, who had a global vision, global experience, global understanding, global audience, and knew how to present the Indian perspective to global not only audience to global mind. He and people like him, people who are inspired by him, people who are taught by him are needed for India to emerge as a thought giver to the world, exporter of thoughts. And not as a contributor of thoughts, not as merely a consumer of thoughts. This is the next stage of development and the world needs a civilization which has no record of violence. I want to cite to this audience the work done by Professor R.J. Ramal and the site is called Power Kills. You must go and see that website today. He has traced human violence against human violence for the last 2,500 years. He built this site over by university And he says in the world in this 2,500 years, a minimum of 680 million people and a maximum of 1.2 billion people have been killed by humans in action by humans. Till 13th century, 
There are only three instances of killing in India, according to this site. One was the Ashoka's Kaliga War. 100,000 people died. The other two are Satis and Thagis. In Satis and Thagis, the site says that the deaths were not even tens of thousands, which is now magnified into demonizing India. The site says it is not even tens of thousands. Even one person dying is a shame of India. But not to say that this constituted the shame of India, considering the scale of violence that was taking place elsewhere in the world. How did India avoid that violence? Such a diverse country. No single ruler. No single law. No single police. But the single thought. That made us non-violent. Just to accept the world will be, there will be differences. That you have to live with persons whose habits you can never come to terms with. You have to live with forms of God which you will abhor. We had any number of gods. The number of gods in India were more than the number of Hindus at one point in time. You could manage with this kind of diversity. And we had the philosophy to do it. It just did not happen without a philosophy. The philosophy is that everybody is entitled to his own way of worship, of life, of eating, of dressing, of living. This is not just tolerance. As Swami Vivekananda said, this is acceptance of diversity. Tolerance of diversity is an inferior virtue. He says, your way of life is bad, but still I tolerate. So, India is no position to become the contributor and the exporter of ideas founded on this non-conflicting values, which is founded again in our Vedanta. Mahanarayana Upanishad um, uh, in, 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 in uh, Samaveda, this Vasudeva Kutumbakam concept comes. It is you versus another is an inferior idea. Thousands of years back. We saw the entire world as one conceptually and lived it locally in the same way. We saw the entire universe, Swami Vayana used to put it so beautifully. Isavasya Upanishad. He said everything that you see, ultimately, whether it is the cloth, whether it is the dress, whether it is the cotton, whether it is the everything, ultimately it is one. So this idea that we have to live with nature, we have to revere nature, is now a modern idea. These thoughts have to be expounded. And we need institutions, we need individuals, we need researchers for India to emerge as a continent of the world. This will be the greatest tribute that we will be paying to one of the greatest exponents in contemporary times of ancient values. Swami Dayananda Sarsuti, I am happy that I could share 
this intense thoughts of mind which connects diverse subjects and focuses on swami dayanand sarsvati thank you very much thank you so much uh, shri gurumurthi ji this is uh, an extraordinary exposition starting from your interactions with uh, pudhi swami ji and the kind of work that you did with him and then uh, weaving it to what he has what his contributions were and then looking at india and india's role in the global order and then bringing it back to how he thought and how he has synthesized it back and how india can uh, become a vishwa guru so to speak i just want to uh, we have some time i just want to pick up uh, a, a few threads that uh, you spoke about uh, especially uh, in the last you were talking about uh, tolerance uh i uh, i think pooja uh, swami ji uh, in his millennium summit uh global millennium summit in united nations uh he spoke about this uh, in terms of mutual respect uh rather than tolerance uh i know you were working with him at that time can you share some anecdotes about that uh, uh, that speech because that speech for the probably the first time uh hindu Uh, monk so to speak uh, after swami vivekananda uh, spoke on a global uh, platform so can you share some thoughts about uh, his speech and uh, the contents of that see swami ji's ideas as i said from a vedantin to a vedantic nationalist this transformation made him expound the most difficult truth that all religions are not the same their goals are not the same that is where he differentiated the aggressive religions from non aggressive religions and he said all religions were non aggressive because no pre abrahamic religions imposed themselves on others they lived their life that is where he brought about this diversity of faiths meeting in which he said all of them lived an vedantic life and only we had the philosophy explaining that's the difference everybody whether it is south americans whether it is uh, um africans whether it is asians these millions of small communities lived in the same way they behaved in the same way they related to each other in the same way they related to nature in the same way but we only had a philosophic explanation as to why they are doing it so that philosophy prevented hinduism being called animistic they could not dismiss hinduism as animistic because we had a philosophy we did not stop with merely worshiping a tree isa was samidam sarvam we had an explanation for that this was swamiji's greatest contribution why india should emerge as a thought giver to the world is to make the people in fact he used the word he used to use the word we have to validate them 
through our philosophy. Otherwise, they are called animes, they are called backward, they are called uh, uh, living in wrong times. So this powerful and original and innovative spiritual intellectualism was a remarkable contribution of Swamiji. And not one could dispute it. The most important thing is not one could dispute it. So I think in your uh, study, Indic Academy, this particular aspect you must produce a document as to how important it is because everywhere now pagan religions are coming up. In fact, the British Prime Minister even said we need pagan gods. We need Roman gods. Because the world is getting bored with one god. Because you can never formalize spirituality. You can never homogenize a diverse world. And now it is that turn which is important. Virmutiji, in terms of what Adi Shankaracharya has done in his time, in terms of synthesizing the different forms of worship and synthesizing and establishing these four centers, uh, and what uh, uh, the same strands I see in what Puja Swamiji has done in terms of trying to, but probably for the first time in the contemporary times, forming this uh, Hindu Dharma Acharya Sabha, uh, actually going to individually to all the Matadipatis and bringing them together. A uh, uh, lot of people complain that uh, the Matadipatis are not in tune with uh, uh, the attacks on uh, our Dharma. Uh, they are insular. They look at. They look within, and uh, they are not responding to the uh, attacks on dharma. And and what Puja Swamiji has done for the first time is to synthesize this and bring them all together. How do you see the role of uh, of uh, uh, Matadipati when there are attacks on uh, uh, on our dharma? What 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 would, what should he or he she do about that? It is it is essentially because. Hinduism did not postulate a theological enemy. In fact, Hinduism, many people say Hindus are not united. I said unity calls for enmity. And unity is power. And Hindus did not have power because they believed in harmony rather than unity. So, Hinduism actually needs a state to defend it. No other religion needs a state to defend it. But it is the state which orphaned Hinduism here. That we survived this long goes to show that it is so rooted that it could revive. Though its leaves had fallen, it had maturely become a dry and barren tree. Its roots regenerated. Otherwise, everybody thought it is a gone case. That is essentially because of the great work done by great masters. So the foundation and the roots were so strong that it could revive. So Swami Vivekananda said, 
the roman eagle floated over everything in this world there the trembled at the sound of the greek army but spider weaves its web where the caesar's rule this is what power ultimately you build physical power and when power goes there is nothing to look for but we lacked the physical power there is no doubt about it even today we cannot bring a unified a vaticanized power because your philosophy doesn't allow it it doesn't postulate an enemy it doesn't say there is only one the one that you think about is when you evolve beyond the forms that is an individual journey there is no collective journey towards brahman so we have basic difficulties in forging the kind of unity which is needed to face other religions which are unified on the basis that there is an enemy to handle they have a global agenda you don't have a global agenda you have an agenda for the world you don't have an agenda against others for to dominate the world so these are all the limitations but these are all the strengths also so my feeling is it will take time because even these sampradayas they when they are facing difficulties to their own discipline their own value system their own tradition their own way of life then they will understand it is necessary to work with others to preserve their own traditions it is not that x is going to uh, harm your traditions but unless x y z come together their respective traditions will be in danger is the message that has to be given to them and that will be the responsibility of the acharyas and i think in the four five meets i have attended that is the focus i remember uh, working uh, with you in uh, in the 90s and early 2000 on uh, uh, on how uh, seeing you closely uh, when you worked on uh, swadeshi jagran manch and you were very unpopular at the time uh, because everybody was uh, focused on globalization uh, and now uh, with what has happened uh, today Uh, uh you are your stand sort of is vindicated in in terms of uh, what the excesses of globalization and now how the world is moving towards deglobalizing and going inward uh i'm sure you must you're not the kind of person who 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 has this i told you so attitude you you're you're a humble person but uh, what are your reflections of that journey from having warned warned all of us about the ill effects of this fast rising globalization and now we are seeing how the world is saying yes so how, how do you feel and what do you, is there a sjm version 2 that uh, that after seeing all these things do you see a new thought uh, emerging uh, from you see <clears throat> in fact in hyderabad only the administrative staff college of india when they delivered a lecture so very big audience one person stood up and said people like you should be shot dead because you are preventing the progress of india <laughs> that was the extent of hostility i faced at that time 
But you know what gave me the strength or two? One, I took a travel across India, from Ludhiana to Batala to Rajkot to Jamnagar to Morbi. It was the most educative experience I had. And I found that the Indian society is not individualistic, it is community oriented, it is caste oriented. They work together. There is a collective unincorporated companies. Thirupur is an unincorporated company of the Gounder community which put up the best, one of the best uh, export shows in India is 67% of the people educated less than 10 standard becoming entrepreneurs and making it a knitwear export center. The same I saw how Ludhiana became a, a, one of the largest cycling manufacturing centers in the world and how Ludhiana was exporting cycling spare parts to all the multinational cycling manufacturers. It is because of a community called Ram Gadia community which could understand and operate technology. It established a machine tools factory. And it is now one of the largest centers of motorcycle manufacturing. How did this come? It did not come because of any university or engineering college. I saw the same thing in, which is the place with the biggest, uh, with the highest per capita income in India. It's not any of these great cities and metropolitan towns. It is a place called Morbi Gujarat. So this, gave me a fundamental different perception that the formal understanding of India is wrong. India is basically civilizational in economics also. It is not individualistic. There is family, community, society working on civilizational values and that puts up the economic performance. Entrepreneurship is the criteria. Whichever community has taken to entrepreneurship have come up. Take Tamil Nadu, the Nadar community, the Gondar community, the Naidu community. They have all come up because they took to business. Those who took to politics have all regressed because they are dependent on the state. Those who took to entrepreneurship are dependent on themselves. So all over when I saw this, I found the Indian civilization is more aligned to entrepreneurship. It is not the traditional Vaishya community. There is a huge shift of the backward class into entrepreneurship. The Patel community, the Ramgadaya community, take any community. So I found there is a very different economics in operation and we will emerge as the winners. This perception I developed between 1992 and 2001. Uh, to 9, 2000 when I proposed to Bihari Vajpayee that we must have this cluster policy. Then only the industrial cluster policy care to promote those clusters which have come up on their own without government support. There are 2,800 artisan clusters in India and 350 active industrial clusters which constitute 60% of India's production and export and as much industrial employment. This is on the one hand. On the other hand, I saw history. How the shelf life of ideas are crashing. Colonialism lasted for 200 years. Every, at that time, everybody thought that was going to be the permanent feature of the world. Then mercantile capitalism came. Everybody thought that was going to be the future of the world. It lasted for 100 years. Communism came. 
everybody thought that this is going to dominate half the world this is going to be 50 years it was gone then globalization came i thought the shelf life of all these ideas are not founded on durable values and globalization was founded on the most compromising values unprincipled world order and so i thought you know unless there is a world government there cannot be a world economic order <laughs> that is why i thought in fact i i said in 1995 globalization will collapse and wto will become irrelevant in those days when i spoke it was not based on any uh, intuition or anything it was based on how the shelf life of ideas which were being promoted by a materialistic world which is not rooted in something permanent is going to be an unstable world yes i remember in fact uh, kishore has also joined us and those days we uh, we remember and you were actually organized meetings for me yes yes <laughs> uh, and uh, those the, those were very um, uh you 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 were you were actually uh, against going against the the wind or the popular uh, uh, speak uh, i have one more question on uh, the narrative uh, we are in power uh, for the last 6 uh, years now uh, uh, and uh, when i say we the the people on the uh, on the on the right or the conservative or the non left side but uh, we are not really um, controlling the narrative and the narrative is completely with the left and the marxists and uh, all those people and um, so political power is there uh, but the narrative is uh, completely uh, uh, in their hands and we've seen this uh, growing more and more in what's happening in the west and we see the impact on that here also do you think uh, at any point in time do you in foreseeable future do you think there would be a time when we will the narrative balance will be in our favor the See, way narratives don't change a nation the narratives reflect a nation today the narrative does not reflect the nation yes so the true narrative will come when this narrative ceases to be relevant is communism a relevant narrative today it was so relevant so dominant so powerful it's gone so what is called as narrative is only a manifestation of what the nation or people are there is a complete divorce between the existing narrative and the existing ecosystem so this ecosystem will manifest because when what you say becomes irrelevant then that narrative will become irrelevant so this is change you know from if you want to know whether the narratives have changed in the country narratives can distort a country it can distort one's mind it can never constitute a durable change because if you look at the narrative of india in the last 70 years narratives have only distorted india they have not directed india india has directed itself that is the it it is the 
one Ram Temple movement has been able to bring uh, the uh, reality of India into a shape which no narrative could have done that because it is rooted in the Indian soil, Indian people, in their mind, in their history, in their civilization, in their belief systems. Your narrative may deny it, the narrative may try to invalidate it, delegitimize it, it's not going to happen. So I am, of course, the narratives control day-to-day -day situation, but it is not going to be more useful than that. It is bound to change. It will change over everything. We have a few questions. I'll just go through it uh, and then we can wind up. Oh. Yeah, most of them are uh, just compliments. So I think uh, we'll wind up. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It was, it was just an extraordinary uh, evening um, sharing uh, thoughts about Buddha Swamiji and, uh, and connecting over Buddha Swamiji and, and understanding. I, I really like the way you brought in uh, the importance of Ayodhya. I, I think that for me is the biggest takeaway of the, 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 the pivot that Ayodhya played in, in the post-70 post thing. And in just in terms of, not internally for all of us, but uh, the role of Ayodhya globally and how people uh, now perceive India uh, just with that, uh, that uh, event. And uh, I never looked at it from that perspective. I only looked at it as a civilizational man and somebody who's very happy. And uh, yes, thank you so much, uh, Gurmatiji. Thank you once again. Uh, it's been an extraordinary event. And this is no other way, the best way for me and for all of us to pay gratitude to Puja Swamiji and uh, all that he has done. I'm so glad that we are connected through Puja Swamiji and he lives through our actions. It's, it's, it's thank you, Thank you. Thank you.